All right, welcome everyone to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast. Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro offers premium brain health coaching to clients interested in peak cognitive performance globally, and we'll be offering targeted neuromodulation to individuals in the South uh, Florida, uh, Miami, Fort Lauderdale area starting November of 2021. Check out roscoeswetsuitneuro.com to learn all about that and to book a coaching session today. On the show with us today, we have a special guest, Jonathan McLernan. Jonathan is an expert emotional eating coach who is passionate about behavioral psychology, brain-driven weight loss, entrepreneurship, and mentorship. He has an extremely diverse background from nanotechnology research chemist to Navy Marine engineer to globetrotting nomad, to powerline technician, to nutrition and supplement store owner, and currently an online nutrition coach, as well as a mentor to new coaches building their business from the ground up. He is a precision nutrition level two certified along with a degree in chemistry and marketing psychology. Um, Jonathan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. That, that's quite an intro. I mean, <laughs> I, I love it. Um, very, I, I used to be a um, ring announcer for a pro wrestling circuit, actually. And uh, that's a bit of a bit of a side diversion. But um, I used to have an intro and intro music and a tuxedo sponsor and all that. So <laughs> that I, I need to get to that level of epicness <laughs> on my show. I envy uh, that. I would come out to um, ZZ Top's sharp dressed man. So it was uh, it was a ton of fun, actually. And nice. somehow that, 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 I missed that one in my bio, actually. Gotcha, <laughs> gotcha. Well, so it sounds like you've had a, a really interesting uh, path. Um, tell me kind of like about, um, I guess, kind of just your your upbringing a little bit and kind of how you ended up in your first kind of careers and then with yeah. the career changes. Uh, just kind of tell me a little bit about uh, the path that you've taken to get to where you are today. Well, I mean, it started out with, with a bang. So I was born at 26 weeks, um, which in 1982, um, survival rate was usually less than 50%. So I'd like to say that I beat the odds. So um, I skipped an entire trimester. I was pretty lucky that my, my dad had the presence of mind to perform CPR with his pinky finger. I was born at home, um, almost born in the toilet. My mom thought she had to go to the bathroom at first. Um, but he did CPR with his pinky finger and then used a syringe to unplug my nose, get my heart beating, um, and keep me alive until the ambulance got there. And uh, you know, I spent nine weeks in a neonatal intensive care unit. I don't remember it, but um, I got really well cared for. And uh, that was kind of the start of it all. Now that, that's kind of an interesting, I guess, start to the story because it kind of explains maybe some of my, my own behavior path. And so because I was I was born early and I had to spend um, the first two months of my life, like kind of living by myself in an incubator, which you don't normally do, um, I developed a fairly strong uh, independent streak. And so um, from like my mom trying to feed me, apparently I'd clench the bottle of my teeth and I would like, you know, scoot over behind the curtain and, and literally try to feed myself. And so, um, because people might look at my, my resume and go, man, like, why, why'd you do so many things? And, and ultimately I think what it boils down to is, um, I would start doing something and at a certain point in time I'd go like, I just can't keep doing this. I'm, I'm, I'm going to like pull my hair out or something. I'd be, I'd be so bored with it. So, you know, when I went to university, I, I thought at first, um, I was going to be a teacher. 
And so I, I thought, okay, well, I'll study chemistry because there's there's demand for science teachers and biology is too easy, physics is too hard, so chemistry is middle of the road. That, that was like literally my logic, my 18-year-old logic. Um, and then it turns out um, I, I got into nanotechnology research. I was going to go into doing a PhD, actually. Um, we were actually developing blue light emitting um, nanoparticles. But uh, again, at that young age in my life, I was like, I can't stand the thought of, you know, working for somebody else for a pittance to get letters off my name that most people don't care about. And so I opted out of the PhD program and joined the Navy instead. I was like, I want to do something a little more exciting with my life. Um, and so then I got into the marine engineering. The Navy is really cool, um, but the problem is they own you. They own your time, they own your life. You go when they say you go. Um, it's okay when you're single, but I'm married to uh, away from Australia and she moved halfway around the world to live with me. And so that, that was not so kosher. So I came home one day and I was like, well, why don't we start traveling the world? Because, you know, everyone buys a house and settles down, but we're going to do this differently. So we, we literally packed everything to a storage unit, hopped on a plane to Puerto Vallarta, <laughs> went inland to Guadalajara, um, did a, a TEFL certification at the school down there and then just started teaching down there. We thought we'd go for maybe six months. And that adventure ended up lasting three years and spanning five continents and a lot of countries around the globe. Um, along the way, uh, I living in South Africa, I was nearly beaten to death. Um, I, I can talk about that relatively lightly now because I've done a lot of the work to move through trauma. And it was almost 10 years ago now. But at the time, I was really not equipped to deal with. I mean, I don't know if any human beings actually equipped to deal with, you know, going through something like that. Um, but basically, I was jumped by four guys. Um, and yeah, they tried to beat me to death. So I was really emotionally unequipped to deal with the fallout from that, everything that happens in your brain, you know, the trauma and all that. And so I coped with my um, trauma through food. Very often people will turn to say drugs or alcohol to try and cope, but for me, it was just food. Um, so I didn't have the tools to process the emotions. And so I ate and ate and ate. Also being traumatized, like my, so my weight started to balloon and I'm, I'm a former athlete. Uh, so it, it ultimately peaked at about 200 or sorry, 328 pounds. <laughs> and I, you know, I was so distressed about being in that physical condition that you won't find any pictures of me. Not at that weight, because I would literally threaten like physical violence to the camera, not to the person, but to the camera. If someone was to take a photo of me, because I felt like so disconnected from who I, who I had once been. And, and, uh, it wasn't until about five years and a lot of struggling with yo-yo dieting and stuff. And, and really interesting, what got me diving back into deep into nutrition science and getting experimenting in, with neurotropics and things. I was looking for a lot of answers to weight loss while avoiding the one glaring elephant in the room. And that was my relationship with myself, my relationship with my body, um, and really my emotional and mental health. So I was trying to do everything except for deal with those things. And it was when a coach asked me this question. He said, if you were to make a list of all the things you love and value, how far down that list do I have to go before I find your name? <laughs> and I was, I was blown away by that question. Um, and at that point in time, I was like, man, I'm not even on the list. It hadn't occurred to me, especially like as a male. And, you know, I skipped over a few details. I used to race motorcycles. I used to power lift and listen to heavy metal and snort pre-workout and stuff like that. Very sort of hyper-masculine behavior. It hadn't occurred to me that, that as a male, um, that I was actually allowed to love myself even a little bit, let alone be near the top of a list of things that I love and value. And so that really, you know, there's a lot of resistance to that, but it really opened a door for me to go, holy crap, like, like, I watch my language. <laughs> um, like, that's, that's something possible. And so there, there's a lot of processing I kind of had to go through in terms of my relationship with myself. But that's ultimately what led to me being able to lose weight and, and keep it off. So well, that was a bit of a, that was a bit of a run there. Right, right. So, so in terms of your, your relationship with your, the uh, 
kind of your weight and yourself. So it, it kind of sounds like it stemmed from um, sort of making peace with, uh, I guess, kind of like your current situation or your, your body rather than trying to like follow an external kind of regimen. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And that's, that's an interesting way to put it. So, you know, because I'd, I'd got into like supplement science, I was diving, you know, I was reading examine.com every day. Um, I was getting into, like I said, getting into nootropics, getting into like really into the weeds with nutritional science. Um, and, and my, my business partner at the time was a natural bodybuilder. And so I was trying to like, you know, learn from him and what he was doing and stuff like that, but it really didn't resonate or connect with me because it wasn't an information gap. It wasn't, there wasn't a gap between like, that was a, probably one of the things I struggled with the most was like, how could I be as educated as I am, know as much as I do, live in the age of Google with all this information at our fingertips and still not be able to accomplish myself. And, and even at that time, even when I was up like 290 pounds, I was successfully coaching other people. Because uh, if I could say so, like I'm, I'm a born coach. I'm a really awesome coach. Um, I, I have the, um, what's the word? I have the endorsement from a few world-class coaches, but I couldn't seem to fix myself. And that was like the biggest gap. And, and this is what I, I see people struggling with. And for me, it was like, how do I bridge the gap between what I know and what I do? What is, what is that? You know, what's the missing link there? And it really stemmed from me starting to get in touch with my emotions, which, you know, nowadays, and I, I sort of talk about it so much that it seems normal, but go back five years, like me as a male talking about being in touch with my emotions, getting connected to them, um, feeling what I feel, being okay with that, making peace with my, you mentioned making peace we actually have to kind of go through this process of grief and like grieving our past self that we're going to leave behind in order to move forward and become the best version of ourselves. And I had to, I had to leave behind all the worry, you know, the former like athlete, the former, whatever, the former, anything I had to leave that behind and say, this is where I'm presently at. And when, when I made peace with where I was presently at, then I was able to start moving forward. Tell me what, what do you think? Cause when you, uh, you mentioned before that, uh, <laughs> that you have a real talent for coaching. Tell yeah. me like, what, what do you think it is? What, what kind of goes into that? Like, what do you, what do you feel like? What skills or, or traits do you possess? Um, you feel like that, that makes it, uh, you know, you have really good connection and rapport with your clients. Yeah. I'm like, that's a good question. Um, Cause I think when something is a skill that comes to us naturally, we very often don't even think about it. We just do it. And then you go like, Oh, I, it's kind of like our, our zone of genius probably the first thing is, is like, I, I'm quite an empath. And I will say like, obviously it doesn't matter who you are as a coach. Like I'm not a coach for everybody, you know, like if you want to be, if you want to, you know, get ripped and shredded and, and do a photo shoot, I could help you get there, but I'm not the coach for you. But I would say like, first off being an empath. And that was the thing that I suppressed for a very, very long time because I didn't, I didn't know that it was okay. Like as a male to have these like big emotions that I felt. Um, and not only that to like really feel them towards other people and generally wanting to help. Um, I think the next piece is uh, really understanding. So I, I stay in my lane. I work with people who have usually have a lot of weight to lose. Um, they have a disordered relationship with food. Well, I know that inside and out because I live that. It's like my day-to-day -day struggle. And, and it's, I think it's really important to highlight. There's this idea, I think, out there that, you know, once you lose the weight that the struggle is done. I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> I have to face a certain biological reality every day of my life. So I have a whole bunch of empty fat cells in my body that are just waiting to be refilled. <laughs> and so I had to come to figure out a way of living that I could actually keep doing if I wanted to stay in the weight loss. Um, but uh, so because of that, I live the sort of the weight maintenance struggle every day. 
that allows me insight into what other people are experiencing. Maybe not their exact experience, but I know what the struggle feels like um, because I've, I've lived it. I'm not a fitness model. <laughs> I don't walk around with six pack abs, um, but I, I know what that looks like. So I think a combination of empathic um, education matters as well, obviously. Um, spent time being educated in, in, in psychology as well as um, nutritional science. But um, really ultimately people ask the question, like, can you help me? <laughs> you know, and that's, that, that's, really what any sort of coaching is about is can you help me where I can't help myself. When it comes to uh, kind of your research into nutrition science and, and you mentioned nootropics, uh, tell me like, were there, like, do you have a strong opinion nowadays as far as kind of the ideal diet or <laughs> the, the perfect um, foods or nootropics? Like, even though it sounds like your approach is definitely like a lot more of a sort of like mindset thing when it, uh, in terms of the relationship to, to food and nutrition. But I do want to just pick your brains as far as like with the actual like hard science of it. Like what, <laughs> what can you tell me? Oh man. So I'm, I would say I'm a nutrition agnostic, which can be really frustrating for some people because we're, I, and I think um, social media plays a big part of this, the way that creates very polarizing opinions and extremes. And so to bump into someone who's a nutrition agnostic where I go, well, I don't think there's one best way of eating, but there's probably a best way of eating for you, the individual. And it's going to take a process of trial and error to figure out what that looks like. Now, for me, I tend to do better on a slightly lower carbohydrate approach. I'm not going full ketogenic or anything like that. I like carbohydrates. I enjoy them. But I also have a tendency to, well, I've, I've been obese. And so um, I tend, and carbohydrates, we live in a carbohydrate abundant society, like well, it's a combination of carbs, um, fat and salt, but, um, and so I think for each individual person, you have to say, okay, well, what are the factors that are in play here? Um, and let's go through this process of a little bit of trial and error to figure out what works best for you. So I practice, um, intermittent fasting, but part of the reason I do that is it, it's, it's a really easy way to create a calorie deficit. Like I don't, I don't, I don't know that I would say intermittent fasting is a magical metabolic state. Neither is say ketogenesis in, in my opinion, but they both have their merits and their benefits. For me, it means that I no longer, no, I don't have to count calories. You know, um, I just create a, a fed window and my fasting lasts anywhere from 16 to 19 hours. I wouldn't recommend that for a lot of people. And even for me, go back a couple of years and that probably wasn't a healthy way to eat because I would use fasting as a way to trade. I've been good, you know, not eating food. So now I can eat whatever I want in this short little window of time and so on. So it's creating this sort of fast binge cycle that wasn't really healthy. And so even intermittent fasting, if you're not able to sort of manage, and I wasn't able to manage it healthily, that I don't think it was a great approach. But now, I mean, like I'm a dad of a young kid. I run two businesses. I'm trying to be a husband as well as like a good human being. I, I don't have time to pull out my scale and, and weigh food. Now, to be fair, I, I'd done a lot of calorie macro counting for quite some time. So I got pretty good eyeballing food and stuff. But in a nutshell, I would say every person kind of needs to go through this process of trial and error, because ultimately, if what you're doing to let's say to lose weight or to get to the physique that you want to do if it's not something you can keep doing ultimately your results you're not going to keep and so for me i was like what is a way of living that feels doable and manageable so for me fasting's easy like i just skip breakfast <laughs> like and um i take calls through my lunch hour so i don't usually eat till about one o'clock um i do evening calls as well um between usually 6 30 8 30 my time and so i usually finish eating by 6 6 30. that's kind of why i end up being like 19 hours um, and I'm so accustomed to it that I, I really don't even think twice about it. So typically eat two meals a day. That allows me to maintain my weight with, without a lot of mental effort. And so that's why I think it's ultimately beneficial. Um, so that's kind of a long way of saying, 
I'm an agnostic and I think everyone goes through an individual process to discover what works best for them. Awesome. Do you have any uh, uh, kind of opinion on longer fasts, uh, like multi-day fasts? I've done a few of them. <laughs> um, they should be done carefully. So you'll find that I'm, I'm, to be fair, my bias leans towards being a centrist. I'm like a hardcore centrist, you know, we won't go into politics, but I was going to, you know, I say, I feel like I'm politically homeless. Um, in, in an increasingly polarized world, um, I really value the skill of critical thinking, um, taking time to weigh like both perspectives and to try to come to a conclusion. So that's just a little side note. So uh, as a centrist, um, so a longer fast, I would say can be beneficial, but should be medically supervised. Um, it, it, because there is the potential for things to go wrong with it. Um, <clears throat> the longest I've gone is five days. And it's really interesting. Anyone who's done an extended fast, you know, after about day three, like the hunger just kind of disappears and the desire to eat disappears for a period of time. And you actually experience this real like uptick in mental clarity and heightened awareness and heightened senses and so on. I'm inclined to think, and you, you might know more about this than I do, but I'm inclined to think that part of it is a biological response to actually get us looking for food, <laughs> you know, um, where we become primed, but it's this really interesting mental state to be in. And so, you know, not thinking about food frees up time to be really productive and creative. And so I think sometimes there's benefit to these sort of, what say, like mid-length fasts. When I talk about mid-length, I'm talking those three to five day fasts versus say your, you know, 14 to 19 hour fasts. So that sort of length of fast can be really beneficial if you, if you want to go into a period of productivity. The longer ones getting into the, the, you know, 10, 12, 21 day, 30 day, you know, water only fasts, they also can be helpful, but I, I would approach those with caution and say it's best like i know down in the us there's some clinics that do like medically supervised water fast and i think that's a really intelligent way to approach it um it's risky to do it on your own without somebody monitoring you because sometimes i think in, in these states we might miss things um and so having sort of a third party intervening or, or just watching over you would be the best way to approach something like that awesome how would you how would you say that kind of exercise and nutrition has affected kind of your own entrepreneurial ventures and just your own ability to to kind of show up in terms of you know running your companies? Yeah, uh, man, you got good questions. Uh, <laughs> super important. If you don't take care, like I, I have to remind myself of this. So being like an empath, my natural tendency is to try to take care of other people before myself. And this is probably why I was like, I was really great at coaching other people. I couldn't seem to fix myself. And I'm like, there's a little side note there. My brain, my brain has lots of little sidetracks where we're talking about just my relationship with myself and understanding that investing in myself doesn't mean other people lose. But in order, like we want our, like being an entrepreneur, you're basically solving problems and it requires a lot of critical thinking and creativity. And in order to, to be able to access those parts of our brain most effectively, we need to be in good physical condition and good mental health. Um, and I think exercise is such a huge part of like mental health. And it's funny because I say like, I don't, I don't treat exercise as something, a tool for weight loss. I think it's a terrible tool for weight loss. Um, biologically speaking, like the response is not that great. It's an amazing tool for fitness and health. Um, if we look at the top five biomarkers of aging, um, things like bone density, um, strength, actual physical strength, lean mass, um, body fat percentage, and basal metabolic rate, the one thing, the one activity that can affect all of those, those five categories is resistance training. So cardiovascular training has real value as well, um, but it doesn't affect all those things positively. In fact, things like bone density, strength, and lean, lean body mass, it can actually negatively affect those things if it's not paired with something like resistance training. So if I was to say, if there was one optimal activity that we could do 
to ensure that we show up as as best we can in day-to-day -day life it would be resistance training um not every not seven days a week but i'd say four days a week you know doing something like that it's necessary we have to invest in ourselves in order to perform at our best um, and to be competitive especially in, in today's modern marketplace awesome how, how would you say as far as um in terms of uh in terms of with coaching what are some of the most common uh, like roadblocks that you encounter like clients running into and maybe some of the most challenging things that that you have to uh, deal with when it comes to being a coach that i would say has more to do with the type of coaching that i do um where uh, in that i walk a fine line that i'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist um, and so i have to be careful that i stay in my lane that being said, I'm pretty well versed in emotional eating and I've been through trauma, I've been through trauma counseling, I've come out the other side of it. So I have an understanding of what people's experience is. And so um, I think one of the biggest challenges is hearing why people are in the state they're in, hearing their backstory and knowing there's things that I can't do, <laughs> like illegally I can't do to help them. Because my natural instinct, again, is to try and help people as much as possible. The, the times that I hear stories of like, like the backstories of people, like you look at someone who's overweight and maybe when I was young and naive and didn't have any life experience, I would have thought, well, they're just lazy and dumb. <laughs> and it turns out, oh no, they've got a, you know, a history of like, uh, of trauma, uh, a lot of sexual trauma with females, you know, things that I wish I didn't hear. I do hear, and I, I'm, I'm okay with hearing it, but the, the backstories that I hear and go like, wow, like this is why you're at where you're at. And so knowing that really it isn't a cut and dry solution. It's not like a, it's not like a, here's your macros, here's your meal plan, just follow this and everything. No, no, no. There's a lot to process. And so it's really quite a more in-depth type of coaching. And so the biggest challenge is really, yeah, like hearing stuff that I, that I'm not qualified or legally permitted to address, but still needing to hold space for them to express those things, because ultimately it's a part of their experience and why they're in the state of health that they're in. Do you, do you find that people, uh, like say if it's, if it's not as big of a, like, if it's not like a, a huge trauma that occurred, like if someone comes to you and, you know, is kind of like, you know, I want to lose X amount of weight, I've been having trouble. Do you find it important to try to kind of go through their history and track down some of those reasons that, that may be holding them back or, or not so uh, much? Maybe not necessarily. Um, I mean, and I think one of the reasons I love coaching is because each person is kind of like a unique puzzle to me. Um, and, and I guess my role isn't to go back and try to change or correct anything that's happened in the past, but to just use that information to help inform their present behaviors. And so my the kind of the perspective I take with coaching um, is all behavior makes sense. Doesn't mean that it's, it's, it's ideal, but we can if we can understand why a certain behavior is taking place, then we can start to implement sort of corrective practices. And so I would go and say, like, if we were trying to create a world that made sick and fat people, we've done it. We've done it. We've perfected it. We've basically hijacked brains. So you look at social media and, and the way that it conditions us. It's like a slot machine, you know, and it's, it's deliberately like that. And, you know, I have to be really thoughtful about my own social media use running an online business, you know. Um, when you look at something like Netflix and using open loop psychology to keep people binge watching Netflix, you look at like food manufacturing and 
the additives they put in food. I'm not really so much about like they're toxic and trying to poison you. It's like, no, they're trying to hijack your brain and by, bypass your prefrontal cortex and get to your primal brain. They're, they're basically taking advantage of biological urges and impulses we have. We have a famine biology, but we live in a feast world where we can literally get everything from the touch of a button, like without like lifting our butt off a couch. That works perfectly in a famine world. You know, if we can get food at the touch of a button, it doesn't work so good when we live in a feast world and it's a feast of like nutrient empty calories and so on. And so that's a bit of a bit of a, I guess, a sidetrack for from your original question. But the biggest challenge that I think we face here is the modern world, the modern world of convenience that we live in. And so every, everyone, regardless of their background, is trying to navigate their health in this modern world where a lot of powerful forces are pushing us to be sedentary and to eat garbage food. It actually takes conscious effort and input to change that and to go, go against the stream. And if you want proof of that, it's like, look at the numbers. 70% of our population in North America is either overweight or obese, and it's trending upwards despite you know the multiplication or the um, let's say logarithmic expansion of knowledge. Like it's crazy how much knowledge is multiplying and yet so is obesity. Right. It sounds like you, like people aren't applying that, that knowledge or at least not in a consistent enough manner in order to really affect kind of change. Right. Well, there's, there's such a broad, like a broad array of factors that bring us to this place. Cause it, man, it's like, you wish there was a magic bullet, like put a tax on sugar. Well, I, that's not quite the, I don't, I don't think that's going to be a magic bullet. I, I think it would help if we stopped subsidizing like monocrop agriculture and started subsidizing like regenerative agriculture and permaculture based um, farming and stuff like that. But ultimately, you know, um, and it's not even, a, you know, it's not, I don't think it's a lack of motivation. I don't think it's a lack, like a moral character failing. It's that we have these powerful forces that are, that are you know, far more powerful than any, any, any sort of human brain, single human brain in a sense that have basically engineered life to the most like convenient way possible, which turns out that it's actually terrible for our health. And it really takes a high degree of conscious awareness to go, hang on a sec, like I'm just doing this on autopilot. You think about something simple, like you walk into your kitchen and you probably follow a specific path to the pantry, you know, to get your kid's granola bar or something like that without even thinking about it. You know, th these sort of patterns of behavior. And that's what gets me interested in, in beyond the nutrition because the fundamentals of eating healthy are relatively simple we could we could debate the nuances between you know everything from carnivore to vegan but there's fundamental precepts that remain pretty much true regardless of how you choose to eat that you know every one of those has common factors that can move us towards being more healthy um so again sorry that's i i, I took a little bit of a sidetrack from your original question there no no i i that's a good sidetrack there um I wanted to actually uh, switch gears a little bit. Yeah. Uh, there was something in your bio that I wanted to ask you about. Um, positive masculinity. Uh, you mentioned it being <laughs> yeah. something that you're really passionate about. Tell me about like kind of your definition of that and, and why you find it important. Man, that's a, and that's a broad question too. Um, I think a lot of times we hear this word masculinity, we hear the word toxic attached to it. And while it has a place, I think it's a really discouraging thing to hear for for a lot of men. Um, my my inclination in, in time, like I work primarily with females, um, mostly because males won't put up their hand and ask for help. It's not that there's not a health crisis amongst men as well. It's that men won't put up their hand and ask for help because it sort of goes against. So there there are certain and and the things that I hear from, let's say the female clients I I, I work with that often have like experiences. Um, 
perpetrated against them by by men i'm like okay i understand why this exists but if all we ever do is point our finger towards you know the negative traits in male behavior how do we ever inspire men to rise up and live um as good men in this world and so i wouldn't i, I don't necessarily think that there's a war on masculinity I don't, you know I, again i take a very balanced approach to this my centrist approach but on the same token i don't hear a lot of um encouraging men to use some of their most amazing like qualities to to do good in this world and to be better in this world and so you know men have the capacity to be physically strong it's just it's wired into our biology well cool let's let's like make that a positive um and so how do i define positive masculinity <laughs> it's like using our powers for good um if it, if it encapsulated in a nutshell it's every one of us has like you know could we say basically two two aspects to our nature? You know, we have a tendency towards e either good or evil. Maybe again, maybe that's an oversimplification, but it's like using the powers and gifts and abilities that we have to create positive change in this world. And you know, it's funny. I'm like, huh, I haven't talked about this publicly. I have like a secret project that I want to launch one one of these days. And I'm calling it Building Beacons of Hope, and it's really about um, a grassroots level change, so inspiring people to create change at grassroots level. Because sometimes I think. We would look at the scope of the problem and say like we need to we need some top-down change through i don't know government uh legislation or something like that and i think really if we're going to inspire change it's actually going to happen grassroots up and so people doing small positive things um in even their local community um it, it is gonna be much more powerful than sort of one voice speaking top down if i could put it that way so again i'm like i don't know if i quite totally answered your question um but that's a good start Right, right, right. And so you mentioned like, uh, you know, physical strength as far as being one of those kind of positive qualities, you know, that that men possess in general. Tell me about like, what are what are some of those other qualities that you think are, are and obviously, you know, it is definitely not like, oh, is the case that, you know, a man would possess, you know, one of these qualities course, and a woman yeah. wouldn't, but like what, in general, what do you feel like some are, are some of the other kind of positive qualities um of masculinity that that can be expressed in the world yeah and and it, maybe i always like to sort of pre, uh, preface this kind of carefully because i'm like there's such a like masculinity covers such like a broad spectrum you know there was sort of you, you know maybe very often when we thought about masculinity in the past you think about like rambo or homer simpson <laughs> like those are your two choices you're either a lazy fat donut eating you know sort of bumbling lovable idiot or you're this hyper masculine super muscular superhero sort of larger than life character and I'm like well there's a lot of space in between there that you know we can we can slot ourselves into and so but we, we can look across sort of like male biology as a whole and find um, certain common trends right and so men tend to be um, maybe a little bit less connected to their emotions than, than females do that's sort of a biological we could probably make that as a um, a, a biological what's the word I'm looking for imperative uh, not imperative, uh, stereotype, <laughs> there we go, you know, and, and again, none of these hold like 100% true, but we can say like across the board, we're going to kind of generally observe that, there, that like there's this sort of separation between like men and their emotions. Well, what that allows us to do is it allows us to do things that maybe are more difficult and, un and uncomfortable um, and sort of persevere, you know, through, through hard circumstances and without getting necessarily dragged down negatively by it. Um, you know, you think about a lot of the most uh, sort of physically difficult and demanding jobs that are carried out in this world. And again, like, I don't, I don't, I'm like, I'm trying to choose my words carefully because, you know, but we see a lot of that happening with, uh, that, that men are doing that, you know, and on the flip side of things, um, 
you know, we, we see a lot of like the, the struggles around suicide are really um, faced by men as well. And so sometimes feeling a sense of loss and a sense of like, what, what is my, my place or purpose in this world? Because our modern world is moving away from, you know, a lot of sort of physical strength-based, you know, activities that's being replaced by automation and robots and things like that. And so I think there's a lot of men feeling lost and trying to figure out like, what is my, what is even my place in this modern world anymore? And so that, that, um, that I guess leads me, you know, sort of brings me to this place of like, what, what does it look like in, in even the, the modern world? you know, positive masculinity. And so, um, yeah, again, I think, I think I find myself on a bit of a sidetrack here. Um, but yeah, no, I'm going to, I'm going to pause there and let you, let you bring another question. In sure. Like, I, I want to stop going down too many rabbit holes. No, it's, it's all good. Um, I was going to ask you as far as like, you know, in terms of you, you mentioned that you, the, the majority of your, the, the clients, the coaching clients that you work with are women, but yeah. in terms of the men that you do work with, or just, can you talk a little about kind of the gender differences in terms of uh, coaching and, and kind of how that yeah. comes into play? Cause I yeah. mean, you're just talking about how, you know, probably women being more connected to their emotions and generally, so in general, so maybe that being more of an issue that you would have to help men with, or just yeah, kind of, how does that, how does that play out? it can be more of a challenge to get men to open up. Um, and I, we could say that like maybe historically speaking, vulnerability was perceived as weakness and could be potentially threatening, um, especially when, um, let's say if we go back a few hundred years and, and further back, like male strength was a really important facet of our, of our society and, and hierarchy and so on. And so there's still this, this spillover effect where being vulnerable feels like a risk. Um, and so trying to, one of the challenges is trying to create the space for men where it's like, it's okay to be vulnerable. Like it's okay to express something that you're experiencing. It doesn't actually diminish you or make you weak. And in fact, maybe the opposite is true. And, and I experienced this myself where uh, I was like suppressing everything I felt because I felt so much guilt around experiencing these emotions because I did, I, you know, I didn't think that it was appropriate as a man, or at least in my, that, that picture I had of masculinity, I didn't think it was appropriate for me to express these emotions. And so I would, I would hide them. I would suppress them. I would, you know, I'd watch a movie and I'd feel like, you know, touched and be like, oh gosh, there's a tear, you know, as I'm watching this movie. But then I would like, like, oh crap, I hope my wife doesn't see that. Like, you know, because she might think I'm weak or something like that for, for having feelings. And so I think that's one of the biggest challenges is getting men to be like, hey, it's okay to have feelings. Um, it doesn't actually diminish you as a man or, or weaken you to have that. And in fact, trying to suppress them will probably weaken you. Right. Yeah. Can you, can you talk a little more about that? Cause that, that's a, that's a really interesting statement that you just made that. <laughs> so as far as, as far as like the, the harms of kind of suppressing that emotion, those emotions versus being able to kind of correctly identify what those are and maybe what's causing them. Like, yeah. Okay. So maybe, maybe I could paint a quick analogy here. Um, and this, this is sort of one that I, I use quite a bit where I say, first of all, we don't really choose our emotions necessarily. Right. And so to, to feel shame for an emotion that comes up, like it doesn't really make sense because we didn't choose that. We, we don't, if we did, we'd choose like happy and pleasure pretty much all the time. So we don't, we don't have a choice over our emotions, but emotions for me, I treat them like a check engine light, you know, like that yellow light on your dashboard that comes on. It's got a little, little engine shape there. That'll come on and that'll tell you something needs your attention, but it doesn't tell you exactly what it is. Now, trying to suppress those emotions is probably the equivalent of taking a piece of black electrical tape and putting it over that light on the dashboard so you can't see it. The problem is still there. It's never been dealt with, 
but it's not immediately in, in your immediate consciousness. And so we would do things like drink alcohol or eat food or, you know, watch sports um, or any play video games, you know, excessively and things like that, where we check out and try to change the channel in our head instead of addressing it. Why is that emotion even here? And so the flip side of that is, so that check engine light comes on. And if you're not a mechanic, you might, especially with more modern vehicles, you bring your car to a dealership or a mechanic, and they're going to plug a computer in, and they're going to run a diagnostic, and they're going to figure out, here's what the issue is. So if we were to stop treating emotions like something negative that doesn't belong there and start treating it like, hey, this is a piece of information. This is a piece of feedback. This is telling me that something needs my attention right now. And being able to kind of be present with it. Because the other part of it is, you know, it's like without sadness, there is no happiness. Without like sorrow, there is no joy. Um, so every like positive emotion has a negative emotion that's sort of it's, it's equal and opposite. That contrast is what gives color to life. And it almost goes back to when I think about how social media has colored our perception of reality in, in quite a way where when we experience a difficult emotion, other than anger, it seems like um, anger and outrage is the cons, is, is the common trigger on social media. But any, any emotion outside of that that's negative, that's, that somehow something is wrong with us if we experience that emotion. It's like, no, it's not. It's not something wrong. In fact, it's a very necessary and important part of life to be able to experience these emotions, not only experience them, but be able to like process them and navigate them. And, and I have, I'm like, I'll keep going here, but uh, I have like a little acronym called FAST uh, that, I, uh, that I often employ for myself um, and, and encourage my clients to as well. And it really is feel, acknowledge, accept, um, speak, and time. And so very often we use this tool when dealing with emotional eating. So the urge to um, eat food to change the channel in our head or to change what we're feeling in our head. So, you know, feel is relatively simple. It's like actually just trying to get in tune with where in my body do I physically feel this taking place? Um, acknowledge or accept is, is really coming to that place that, hey, I didn't choose this emotion. It's, it's okay that it's here. There's not something wrong with me because I'm experiencing a difficult emotion. And speak isn't necessarily speak out loud. It could be writing on paper, but it's producing language to try and define what it is that we're feeling. Like what's going on in my body right now? And then T is time. And so for, for majority of cases, the most intense part of an emotion, the most intense part of a, an emotional wave, if you could put it that way, lasts only about seven to 10 minutes. Like, yes, the residual of that emotion might, might stick around for a few hours, but the most intense part of any sort of urges and emotions will last only seven to 10 minutes. And so if we can create a little bit of time between ourself and maybe an impulsive or negative action um, driven by that emotion, we're much more likely to make better choices. Does that, I assume this sort of, uh, that, that sort of FAST acronym, does that also come into play when it, uh, you know, comes to like uh, eating, I would think, being able I'm to like, this. being able to like, like someone has a strong impulse to, to, you know, eat the whatever cake that they see in the store or whatever. Yeah. Does, uh, is it a similar sort of like process as far as like absolutely. how you would yeah. advise someone to handle that? Yeah, um, there's no biological imperative for us to eat flour, sugar, and fat and salt combined in the form of like a donut or a French fry. <laughs> like, there's no biological imperative. Um, it's purely a psychological craving at that point. Um, and, and and I like to differentiate between what I call like above the neck and below the neck hunger. Um, you know, a below the neck hunger is really quite blunt. I eat brown rice and tuna and celery right now. You know, that's it's a very physical like blunt hunger. Whereas uh, a psychological hunger is usually very specific. I want Doritos. I want a Snickers, you know, I want a donut, I want chips. It's a very specific. And that's when you know you're, you're going to engage in, in some sort of emotional eating. And, you know, this term emotional eating, 
I say very often we hear that and it's probably the first thought is like crying into a tub of ice cream watching Bridget Jones diary on a rerun or something like that. But really that's only one component of emotional eating. Um, emotional eating can be eating to celebrate. Hey, I got a promotion. Let's eat a bunch of pizza and drink a bunch of beer. You know, um, I'm, I'm angry, maybe even angry at myself. And so I'm just gonna eat this cake because I don't care, you know, um, things like that. So anytime we eat to change whatever it is that we're experiencing or feeling in our head, um, is, is a form of emotional eating. And so the, the, the acronym FAST is, is kind of a way to, to, to teach ourselves and to become aware that, hey, you know what, like experiencing this negative emotion, on the upward swing of the wave of an emotion, it feels like it's going to trend up to like infinity and your head's going to explode if you don't do something about it. But the truth is, it's going to come like a wave, like an ocean wave. It's going to come in, it's going to be intense, and it's going to crash, and it's going to break, and it's going to fade away. Knowing that, it's like if we can create a little bit of time again between the intensity of the emotion that we're feeling and the action that it's sort of encouraging us or pushing us to do, we're more likely to take positive actions. And I think that would come into play in just about like more than just emotional eating. There's, you know, real value in other applications in life as well. Sure. Well, Jonathan, we're uh, we're coming up onto the end of the show, but yeah. uh, before we wrap up, um, any final thoughts related to anything related to emotional eating or coaching or um psychology any any anything that we've sort of touched on today um i would say like make life simple for yourself um there's a lot of like deep aspects to some of the things we're discussing that could could easily be more, more of it could be explored but it's like really make life simple for yourself and so if you want to be successful in changing your health let's like work with your brain the way that your brain actually works um so i encourage people to set what i call cmgs you can't miss goals you know, so if you want to change your health, it's like set a goal, uh, walk 5,000 steps. Why 5,000 and not 10,000? Because you can probably hit 5,000 most days. You can build a winning streak. And so it's like do little things like that. Uh, maybe it's eat one colorful plant at every meal, you know, whether it's a piece of fruit at breakfast and vegetables for lunch and dinner. Make it so simple that even on your worst day, you could probably make that happen because that's ultimately how you start to craft a lifestyle that'll move you not towards just like losing the weight, but actually being able to keep it off and keep it off permanently. Awesome. Well, how about if, uh, if people want to connect with you or find out more about your work or get coached by you, where would you direct them to? Uh, you can find my website, freedomnutritioncoach.com. Um, you can find me on Facebook. You can actually just send me a friend request. I'm pretty, I'm pretty easy going that way. Jonathan McLernan. I'm like, that's, um, you find me on Facebook, send me a friend request. I do have Instagram and Twitter. Um, but generally speaking, I don't use those social profiles all that much. And I, I post a lot of my content. I just use my personal Facebook page a lot like a, a blog. And so if you want to, you know, connect with me, it's like, shoot me a message there. It's, it's really almost that simple. Awesome. Well, for the listeners, go ahead and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're Roscoe's Wetsuit. You can also find audio versions of the podcast available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and just about anywhere else that audio podcasts are available. And if you guys did enjoy the show, it'd be greatly appreciated if you could leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That would be really helpful. Jonathan, again, thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing your expertise. I really appreciate your time. Hey, thanks so much, Toby. It was a pleasure.